open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And again, we're just working our way through this book. And next week is Mother's Day, so we have a very special text. It'll be the next couple verses in 1 Corinthians 3. But then after that, we actually have uh, two special guest speakers, and we'll have uh, Carl will be speaking one week, and then Jorge will be preaching for us. So uh, look forward to that. You'll learn more about that next week. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, what are some of the greatest accomplishments in our world? If you think about what people have done, men and women, what they've invented, what they've created, what are some of the most amazing ones? I think one would be that uh, we've had people walk on the moon, right? Man has walked on the moon. I think another one would be that uh, our founders of our country has, have given us a constitution and a country by the grace of God, but they've given that to us, and we have had freedom, really, in this time, in this time period, unlike the world has really ever seen. Uh, I think about the gadgets that many of us have in our pockets, those iPhones and other phones like that, other gadgets, and just the remarkable idea that we have a, a computer in our pockets, and a, and a camera, and a GPS, and just think about all the things with that. I think about jumbo jets, these airplanes that are flying around the world. I think about the fact that we've mapped the human genome, and you just think about all these amazing accomplishments, you know, the great wonders of the world. What is the greatest work in our world? If you were to think about what is the greatest project that anyone could be a part of? What is, I guess I kind of give a, a hint up there of what it was, but the answer is, it is the church. After inventors and builders and, and famous people die, they go into eternity. And all their work is left behind. Their glory is soon forgotten. Their importance has ended. Whoever they were, whatever they did, they are now passed into the next life. Whatever they did on earth in the power of man, for the glory of man, and the wisdom of man is left with man. But there is something that men and women and boys and girls can be a part of. There, there's a project that they can work on that will outlast them that will last for eternity, and it is the work to build God's people, to build the church. Do you realize the greatest and most holy work God is doing right now, that God did last year, that God is doing this coming year, is the building of his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. So Jesus so that he is the master builder. And for the last 2,000 years, he has been building his church. This is the primary work of God on earth. Jesus has been given the authority to build his church from the Father. Jesus empowers that work by the Spirit. Jesus is doing that work through his disciples. Our great commission is to go out and make disciples, to, to baptize people, to teach them everything Christ has commanded. God's greatest and most holy work now is building his church. And I think it's important to remember when we say the word church, we're not talking about a denomination. 
We're not talking about this structure right here and structures like this. We're talking about God's people. You are the church. So God's great work is to build his church, his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, Paul teaches us that since God's greatest and most holy work today is building his church, then we must consider how we are to be a part of building his church. So our text starts in verse number 9. I will read that for us. You might notice that it overlaps from last week. So really our text starts at the end of verse 9, but I'll read the whole thing. Verses 9 through verse 17. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work has, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. I pray your spirit will empower it. Empower your word so that we can understand it, so that we can believe it, and we can obey it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and the church was compared to a field. And then in verse 9, you can see he transitions from comparing the church to a field to comparing the church to building a building. And our text today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, compares the church to building a building, but not just any building. This building is a temple. In fact, look in verse 9, the end of verse 9. It says, you are God's field. And really, you could say it like this. You are God's building. And then look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? At the end of verse 17, you are that temple. And the word you there is in the plural. And so this is speaking of God's people, God's gathered church. Again, the church is not a structure. This 4910 Cochrane Street is not the church. When you gather with us, that is the church. The church are God's people. The church is God's people. 
When God's people covenant with him and with each other in unity and faith, and they gather together, then we are a holy temple. The Spirit of God is with us. And so God is present with us right now in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul presented a metaphor of constructing a temple to help us understand how God wants us to be involved in the construction, in the building of his church. God the Father is the owner of this temple, of this building. God is the one who gives the resources to build his church. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the founder. He is the foundation. He's the chief foreman. The stones of the church are the people. And people are being built up. Pastors and teachers lay a foundation. We all build upon that foundation. And really, all of us are involved in building the church. And when Christ comes back, he will inspect the work of all of us involved in building the church, and he will reward those who are faithful. So that's basically the sum of that passage. The building of the church is God's primary work today. And therefore, it must be our primary work. And since God's greatest and most holy work today is building his church, then we must consider our part in building his church. And so I want to consider four different things as we consider building God's church. Four different things to consider as we consider our part in building his church. And first, consider if you are using God's resources to build the church. And what are God's resources? Well, God's resources are his grace and his wisdom. Look at verse number nine. The very end of verse nine, you are God's building. And then he talks about how he, by God's grace, built the church. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church. He, he was reminding them that he was the one who, who planted the church. He was the one who laid the foundation of the gospel for the church. And he says he, he did so. He, he built the church according to the resources God gave him. Notice verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me. I mean, if you're going to build a building, you need resources, right? You need money. You need laborers. You need materials. You need a blueprint. You need a plan. And so what were the resources Paul used to build the church? What I think is interesting is here is he doesn't list any of his own resources. He doesn't boast in his own experience. You know, I planted a church over here in this city, and, and that's why I was able to do one in Corinth as well. He doesn't talk about his winsome personality. He didn't attribute the beginning of the church to his own eloquence or his amazing, amazing educational background. He didn't list any of those things, and why is that? It's because none of those things were central to the success of building the church. It wasn't Paul's resources that built the church. It was God's resources, and it was the grace of God that built that church. According to the grace given to Paul, given to me, he said. Grace is God's loving work in us and then through us. It's a gift he gives to those who trust him. Grace is something God does for us that we don't deserve. Grace is his work that is free, that glorifies God. 
You can't be saved without God's grace, without his work in your life. You can't have victory over sin without grace. You can't please God without grace. Grace is the only work that saves. Grace is the only work that gives us victory over sin. Grace is the only work that grows people and that gives strength. So the question is, how do we get that grace? How do we get that grace? Well, the Father is the one who gives us grace through the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. The Father gives grace through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we pray to the Father and say, Father, please give us grace, work in our life. And he does so based upon the work of Jesus Christ, and he gives us that grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's so important for us as we consider building the church, as we consider our part in building the church, that we use the resources God has given to us. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's speaking about us praying to the Father that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The only way that we can truly build God's church is by his grace. It must flow to us and through us, which means then that we must be a church that is a praying church. We must be looking to the Father and saying, Father, we can't do this in our own strength. Father, we can't do this in our own wisdom. We can't do this on our own. We need your grace work in our life. That means that everything we do Everything we do must be done by grace. If you're teaching a class and you are having a hard time this morning getting up and thinking, I got to get there early, I got to still prepare some things, you get up by grace. You go in that class and you teach by grace. It means if you're the preacher and you're up here preaching, Jorge in a couple weeks, Carl in a couple weeks, I'm doing it right now, Pastor Roger has done it, you should preach by grace. Preach the words of grace, preach in the power of the spirit of grace, depend upon him. That means if you're delivering flowers or a card to someone who's in need, or maybe there's someone that's sick in the church and you give them a meal, that you go there with the grace of God, by the grace of God. You're a channel of grace to that person. That means when we're welcoming people at the door, we do so with grace. And and sometimes we can think to ourselves, oh, I don't know if I really want to talk to this person, but we say, God, give me the strength and grace to talk to them and be kind to them. We're empowered by grace. We're channels of grace. And so we must rely upon the grace of God and also the wisdom of God. Look at verse 10. He says, like a skilled master builder. The word skilled there is actually the word wise. Why did they translate it skilled? I'm not really certain. But it's actually the word wise. And it's sort of a a play on words here. He's saying, I'm like a wise master builder. That's in contrast to the Corinthian church who were using the wisdom of the world. Remember the last two chapters, he was saying, don't trust and follow the wisdom of the world. Trust and follow the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of man, trusts in man's word, depends on man's ability. It centers on man. It glorifies man. The wisdom of God trusts the word of God. It depends on the spirit of God. It centers on the cross of Christ, and it glorifies God. And so we must trust God's in God's grace and in his wisdom. It's God's resources. God's resources builds God's church. So I think it's probably good for us to ask, 
Are you depending upon the grace of God? Like through this past week, this morning, did you get up and think, Lord, I cannot do this day. I cannot come into this church unless your grace is flowing to me and flowing through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. I need your grace, Lord. Then next, we should consider if we are building the church upon the foundation of Christ. So it's according to God's resources, but also it's upon the foundation of Christ. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. So again, Paul is recalling the time where he came. He preached to them for a little less than two years. He founded the church. He laid a foundation with his preaching. Then others came behind him and began to build on that. You can see that there in verse 10. He says, and someone else is building upon it. He's no longer there. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What do you think is the most important part of a building? We think about this building right here. What's the most important part? Well, it's the foundation. The foundation supports the rest of the building. A building is only as strong as its foundation. The foundation provides stability, especially in a place like California, right? When we have earthquakes. There was a time when I was up in one of these rooms, and I was just having some time with the Lord, and so it was very still, very quiet. This is a couple months ago, and there was an earthquake. I think it was only like a 3 or 3.5 or something small like that. My family didn't know it happened. But I could tell something was going on because the building, the, the room started to sway a little bit. And you know, it's those times where you're thankful for a, a foundation. And this, this church has lasted, well, this facility that we gather in has lasted a long time, hasn't it? I mean, we've gone through some pretty big earthquakes here. And I'm thankful for whoever laid a good foundation. And so what, what Paul is saying here is he is saying the most important part of the church is the foundation. And we just sing, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And I don't know if you sing that and think, oh, what does that really mean? What this guy was saying when he wrote this, he's saying that we, in our lives, and as our church, we must base everything in our life, everything we believe, everything we do, must be based upon Jesus Christ. Everything the church believes, everything the church does is built upon the person, the work, and the word of Jesus Christ. In fact, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to notice this because he says this a couple times, that his, the foundation for the church was Jesus, was the gospel of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Notice Christ is commissioning him. He's sending him not to baptize. Baptism is important, but it's not the reason that you, that's not the foundation for the church, but what is? But to preach the gospel. So the gospel of Christ was the foundation that Paul laid for the church of Corinth. And of course, the gospel is the good news that God the Father sent the Son who became man. You have the God-man who lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place and rose again. 
The gospel is the truth that we can't save ourselves. You can't save yourselves. Only Jesus Christ has the power. He only, Jesus Christ, has the ability to save you. This past week, our family went through the biography of George Mueller. You ever read his biography? There's a couple out there. He was a 19th century missionary in England. And George Mueller grew up in a Christian home. He had Christian parents. He grew up in Prussia. And uh, he um, had a pretty normal childhood. His father was a very strict Christian man. And uh, he went actually to university, or George actually went to university in his 20s to be a minister in the Lutheran church. But he was far from being a Christian. Of course, he claimed to be a Christian. I mean, kind of have to if you're going to be a minister in the Lutheran church. But he claimed to be a Christian. But the foundation for his life was not upon Jesus Christ. George Mueller was a womanizing, greedy, thieving trickster. He studied theology in university, but, but Christ was not his foundation. The foundation for his life was himself, was his lust, his desires. He did what he wanted to do. He would go to the bar and he would gamble his money away. His father was pretty wealthy, so his father would send him some money. He would gamble that away. He would drink himself to a stupor and then go to theology class the next day. But one day, he went to this Bible study, and really for the first time, maybe not the first time hearing the gospel, but the first time he understood the gospel, he sat in this Bible study, and here are these unlearned men. You know, they're not training the official university, but they have their Bibles, and they're speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as they were speaking, he realized, he was convicted of his sin and realized that he was a sinner, that he felt terrible, and he felt he, felt, he knew he was a wicked person. He realized that, the, that his, his drinking and his, his lust and his gambling and all those things he had done to rip people off, that they were wickedness in the sight of God. But also he had hope because he realized that Jesus Christ came to save him. And in that Bible study, he knelt down next to his chair and he, he called out to the Lord to save him. And his life changed. At that moment, what he did was he said, that my life's foundation is now Jesus Christ. Like he's my only hope in my life and, and also in death and for eternity. But his life completely changed. He became convinced that he should follow the Lord in obedience. And part of that for him meant that he needed to go be a missionary somewhere. Like I said, his father was very wealthy. So he went to his father and he said to him, Dad, I think this is what God called me to do. And his dad was not happy. His dad went into a rage. He was screaming. He was yelling at him. He threatened him. And he said, basically, you're never going to get a dime from me to go do what you think the Lord wants you to do. And so George Mueller had a decision to make. Was his life going to be founded upon his dad giving him money? Or was it going to be upon obeying Jesus Christ? And so in his dad's office, he looked at his dad and he says, Dad, I will commit right now that I never want a dime of your money. And so, from then on, George Mueller never received any money from his father. He, he was dating this girl, a very pretty girl, a Christian girl, and she had this dream of living in this little house and her husband being a minister. And, and at one point, George Mueller said, you know, I, I think God's actually going to call us to do something very difficult, and so if, if we get married, this is what it's going to look like. And she goes, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's what I, what I want, George. I, that's not what we're going to do. And so he broke up with her. Because the foundation for his life was not 
marrying a pretty girl and not having that comfortable life. It was to follow Jesus Christ in obedience. And the point is, is that, that the foundation for our lives, everything we believe, everything we do must be built upon the person and work and word of Jesus Christ. And that includes all of us individually. That includes us corporately as a church. So we must ask ourselves, is our life, is our church based upon, founded upon the word of Jesus Christ? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to show you this, another text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 2. He said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so for the church, he said, this, is, this was my main message. It was Christ and him crucified. He was the foundation for the church. And then third, we should consider, consider if you are building the church as your life's work. God's greatest and most holy work today is the building of his church. And so consider are you building the church as your life's work? I mean, in this text, Paul gives an overview of, of what it means to build the church, what he did. And notice in verse 10, he laid a foundation, others came behind him, and then he speaks to the whole church. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled, wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and then others, people, other people came, and some, someone else is building upon it. And then I think he broadens the scope of who he's talking about. It's not just pastors and leaders. Now he speaks of the entire church. Notice he says in verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation, look at verse 13, each one's work will become manifest. So notice how he, he broadens the, the wording to speak about all of us. Verse 10, let each one. Verse 12, now if anyone. Verse 13, each one's work. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built. So he's not just talking about pastors and elders and leaders, teachers. He's saying every one of us, the, the entire church, we are all responsible for building the church of Jesus Christ by his grace, with his wisdom. Now, if we were to study Ephesians chapter 4, we would learn that pastors are equippers. I'm a pastor. We have elders uh, are pastors. We are to equip the saints. It's not the job of the pastors to do all the work of the ministry. It's not like you hire someone and that's his job to do everything. A pastor is actually someone who should equip other people. Pastors build people to build people. You could say it that way. In fact, if the elders and the pastors are doing all the work, then we're not doing our job. We're failing at our job. Our job is to equip people to do the work of the ministry. That's what God has called us to do. So what I want you to notice here is that he's saying, listen, we all, as the church, are to build the church. Everyone has a part in this. If you are a member of Lighthouse Bible Church, you have a part in building God's people, in building the church. And from verse 10 down to verse 17, I counted, this might get a little technical, but I counted 23 verbs that are indicative. In other words, an indicative is a verb that states facts. And so it's like fact, fact, fact. Here's what God's doing. Here's what you should do. Here's what God is doing. Here's what you should do. There's only one place where there's an actual command 
an imperative. Look at verse 10. It's the end of verse 10, the last sentence. This is the command that he has for all of us. Let each one, and here it is, take care how he builds upon it, upon the foundation of Christ. So each one, this has every one of us involved in this. Let each one take care. Take care means to consider, to discern, to evaluate, to inspect yourself and and see how you are doing. Again, this is the only command here. So all of us are to obey this command to consider, how am I serving the church? And that's really what he wants us to consider. Look at that. Let each one take care, consider how he builds upon it. And so this then brings up a question. How am I building the church of God? I think this statement right here, this command right here, is asking us how we are building the church. I think it means this. It means that no person is exempt. Every person must be doing something to build the church of God, to build God's people. There's no such thing as a Christian who's saved to sit. There's no such thing as a, as a Christian who, who's saved to, to sit and soak it in. There's no such thing as a Christian who's saved to show up once in a while. We are all saved to serve. We are saved to serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's what we're all called to do. We're all called into God's church to serve God and his church. I think about a time when I um, did construction in Wisconsin. I had a couple different jobs. And there was one time where I did um, installed granite countertops. And so we had a crew that would go out and install kitchens and other other, other things, bathrooms. And uh, so you have these big slabs of granite you're carrying in. You're supposed to do all these different things. And we all have different jobs. And there was a guy on the crew um, who liked to take a lot of smoke breaks. You know what I'm talking about? This was Wisconsin. Yeah, so there was a lot of um, that kind of thing going around where, you know, people show up to work with hangovers and a lot of smoke breaks. But anyways, this guy liked to take a lot of them. And it seemed to always happen right in the most crucial time of the job. You know, we're, it's the big, gra- the big uh, slab of granite, you have to bring it in the kitchen. And it's like, where is this guy at, you know? And it, no one could find him, you know? And eventually, after we're done with the job, we we'll go outside, and he's sitting somewhere. And, you know, here's all these resources around him. Our boss was named Pat. Pat would be like, Scott, where are you at? Scott, come on in here, you know? Couldn't find him. And Pat not necessarily hired him, but he was the one in charge. But I think of it kind of like that. Here's a guy who was, who was supposed to come in help us with the job. We're like, hey, we need some help in here. He had all the resources. He knew what he was doing. He knew what to do. But instead, what did he do? He went out and did his own thing. And honestly, I think that's kind of the picture we see here, that here God has given us all the resources. He, Christ is the foreman. We all are saying, hey, let's, let's do the job together. And there's some people that say, yeah, I think I'm going to go take a smoke break. I don't think I really want to be a part of this, but that's really not an option for us. We must consider our part. How are we to serve God's people? Is your life given over to building God's greatest and most holy work, his church? I think this question, how am I building the church of God, has two parts. One part is, what are you doing? In other words, everyone must be doing something. 
And then the second part is, how are you doing that? In other words, in what manner are you building this church? What are your motives? Why do you serve? What is your attitude? And so your work to build the church can fall into two categories. In fact, you can see that in verse 12. Either you're building the church with work that it endures, that's eternal, or you're building in a way that is temporal, that is fading, that is earthly. Verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. So there's two categories there. Gold, silver, and precious stones represent materials that endure, that last through testing. Wood, hay, and straw represent materials that burn up, that decay, that rot, that that go away. And the picture here in these verses is that the work, our work to build the church will be tested by fire, the fire of refinement. And that work that is eternal, that is done for the glory of God, that work that is done by the grace of God, with the wisdom of God, that work will endure, it will be rewarded But that work that is done for the glory of self, by the strength of self, with the wisdom of self, that will go up in smoke. It will not endure, and you will suffer loss. This is a metaphor. This isn't speaking of real fire or, you know, it's not like there's some bricks in heaven that, you know, every time you do a good work, it's like another, you know, work is up there, another brick is up there. It's not talking about, this is a metaphor. But the the actual event when we stand before Christ, is real. There will be a day when each one of us will stand before Jesus Christ and we will give an account for how we served him and his church. For each Christian, this day is a day of judgment. It's not a judgment of punishment. It's a judgment of reward. The scripture calls this event the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14 says this, For we will all stand, speaking of the church, before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So each Christian will stand before Christ and give an answer for what he or she has done and how he or she has built Christ's church. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, we see that there's a revelation that takes place, a revealing of our work. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. Notice the four words in verse 13 that speak of how God will reveal the true nature of our work. On that day, our work will become manifest, will be disclosed, will be revealed, will be tested. I mean, it's like he wants to make sure that you understand that this definitely will happen. All of us have some type of appointments that are coming up, right? We have a a calendar, and we look at the calendar, and we say, oh, this is coming up on this day, and this is going to happen on this day. And there will be a day when you have an appointment with Jesus Christ. 
And if you have an appointment at a, at a dentist's office or a doctor's office, you probably have those phone calls that, you know, come in and be like, you have a reminder tomorrow at, you know, 2 o'clock, you have a whatever. This is your reminder call. You have an appointment one day, and on that day, it will be you in Christ. It won't be you and your mama. It won't be you and your spouse. It won't be you and your best friend. It will be you before Christ, and you will have to answer and he will reveal what you did to build the church, what you did to build people, how you built the church. I mean, what, what were your opportunities that God gave you? Did you take them? Did you, did you by faith, trust God in, and obey him in those opportunities? I mean, in what ways did you sacrifice for Christ? What did you do to build people? How, how, did, you, how did you love people? How did you disciple people? How were you building the church? What were your motives? Why did you do that? Did you, did you serve for the glory of, of God or did you serve for the glory of yourself? Did you do it in the strength of God's grace or did you do it in your own strength? Did you seek praise from people or praise from God? Did you serve because it was expected? Did you serve because, oh, I feel the pressure, I have to do this? Did you serve because you feel like maybe... There was a guilt upon you if you didn't do that? Or did you serve because you truly wanted to serve Christ? Because you genuinely wanted to help those people. And the judgment seat of Christ, it's not one of punishment. It's not one you should fear. It's one you should look forward to. It's not like, it's not like a trial, like a criminal trial. It's not like watching Judge Judy, right? Two people are, you know, you know it's not that. It's actually more like, it's more like the Olympic medal ceremony where, where you, you've, you've lived your life, you've run the race, and now you come and you receive the prize. This is something that all of us who are serving the Lord should look forward to. But notice that the, the reward is based upon your work. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor Ben, this sounds like works-based Christianity. Well, the answer is, it's not works-based salvation, right? It's not that you do good things and God might let you into heaven or not. You are not let into, let into heaven because of your works, right? It's only by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But this is works that we do on earth that does affect our eternity. It's works done by grace. It's works done by grace alone, on the base of, basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, under the authority of Scripture alone. Did you get that? It's works done by grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, under the authority of Scripture alone. And here's the sad reality. There will be many Christians who came to church every Sunday. They were very nice. They were very kind. They truly are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But most of their lives were about themselves. Most of their lives were about the next vacation they were going to have or the next family gathering they were going to have. Their life was consumed with the things of this world. And for them, church was just a social gathering. It was a place to hear the word of God on Sundays and then go home and, and live the rest of my life. Those Christians will stand before Christ and they will be astonished that they wasted their lives 
on nothing. And they will see all those weekends at the beach go up in smoke. And oh, how they will long to go back and, and live their life for Christ. One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There'll be many Christians, many Sunday school teachers. This is a sobering one. There'll be many pastors and missionaries, many hardworking members that came early in the morning, left late at night, and they worked hard for the church, but they did it for themselves. They served for recognition. They taught for the praise of people. They longed for the position of power and influence. They loved the attention. They stayed in ministry because they had to. Friends, I can't tell you how many pastors that I know that have told me that I don't think I'd be doing this, but I feel like I can't do anything else. What? Like you're going to have a day when you stand before Christ. He not only knows you said that, he knows you think that. There are many that have served in ministries their whole life. They grumbled the whole time. And those Christians will stand before Christ and their work will be revealed as wood, hay, and straw and will all go up in smoke. And I think there'll be a pocket of people who knew them standing in the back who will be shocked. What? That pastor? Like, I can't believe it. But really, the opinions of those people don't matter anymore, does it? It's the one standing before them. It's Christ. That's who matters. And look at verse 15. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So those Christians will be saved. There, there's no threat they're going to hell, okay? So let's get that, make that clear. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as a, a Christian who might go to heaven, might, maybe not. We'll see. No, if you're in the family of God, God does not kick people out of his family. Once you're in his family, you're adopted forever. But there will be a loss. It won't be a, a, a punishment. There won't be pain. It's not like you get the low-income housing in the New Jerusalem, okay? But there will be a, a loss of reward. There will be a loss. You will recognize that there could have been more that you could have done. You could have done it in a different way. Look at verse 14. He says, if the work that anyone has built upon the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, which leads us to our last point. We need to consider Consider if you are building the church in a way that will reap eternal rewards. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built upon it, notice it's conditional. If the work that anyone has done on the foundation survives, survives the testing of God who knows your thoughts, who knows your motives, who knows the true nature of your work, he will receive a reward. If I look back up in verse 8, I want you to notice this word reward was already used. Verse 8, speaking of a, one who labors in a field, the field of the church. He who plants, he who waters are one, speaking of those serving the church, and each will receive his reward. That's actually the same Greek word, reward, according to his labor. So you receive rewards according to your work. 
Each person will receive individual rewards based upon their individual work in the gospel for the church, for Christ's church. So Paul taught here, since God's greatest and most holy work today is building the church, then our life's work must be dedicated to building the most valuable building project. And what is that? It is his church, his people. The greatest accomplishment in your life will not be that house that you're building somewhere else. It will not be the the job promotions you receive throughout your lifetime. It will not be the sports competitions that you won. It will not be getting married and having three kids. It will not be having a relaxing retirement. Right, those are the values of this world, right? They're like, this is the, these are the things you must focus on. Really, the greatest accomplishment of your life will be serving Jesus Christ and his church and building what will last for eternity. And that must be what motivates us in our life, that we will have a day, we will stand before Christ, and if we trusted in his grace, if we utilized his word and his wisdom, if we did it for the glory of God, then he will give us a reward, and then we will cast those rewards back at him. Why is that? Because it wasn't done in our strength. It wasn't done for our glory. It was done for him. So even though he, we did the work, it was actually him who did the work through us. And that is the greatest work that could be accomplished in this world. It is the work in Christ's church. There are three things in this world There's three things on this earth that will last for eternity. First of all, it's God's word. It's forever settled in heaven. So this right here will remain for eternity. It's second is your soul. Everyone has a soul. That will go somewhere for eternity. And the third is the work that you do to build souls. That will last for eternity. Jesus taught more than anyone else that your work on earth will reap eternal rewards. He taught in Matthew chapter 6 that God has given you resources. You should lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth. And if you do, you will receive rewards in heaven. He taught that your secret private prayers will actually reap rewards. That's Matthew chapter 6. He taught in Matthew chapter 10, verse 41, that gospel workers will be rewarded, but also those who help gospel workers. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, those who love their enemies, those who do good, those who lend, expecting nothing in return, their reward will be great in heaven. In James chapter 1, verse 12, there's rewards for those who trust God in trials. If you go through a difficult trial, you do so trusting God, and you have joy, then there is a great reward. And and there are some who will receive greater rewards in heaven and some who will receive less rewards. I think the woman who is in a difficult marriage, but she trusts God, she endures, she loves her husband in spite of her husband, in spite of him not being the best husband, maybe he's the worst husband that she could imagine having, but she says, I'm going to trust God, I'm going to love him, I'm going to submit myself to the direction, to his leadership a woman who, who trusts God in a marriage like that will receive a greater reward than the one who quits. The church member who responds to a rude comment, someone says something to you, it's very rude, and a church member who responds in a way that is loving, or maybe they forgive that person, and they have grace towards that person, 
will receive a greater reward than the person who stomps and marches away. The, greater, the gospel worker who, who is languishing, frankly, somewhere over in like, somewhere like China or Malaysia, I think about someone like, that's doing the gospel work and they're in a prison somewhere, and with joy, they're in that, they are in that prison, they're praising God, frankly, they will receive a greater reward for, than someone like me who's going to go sleep in a comfortable bed, who's going to have an amazing meal after lunch that I'm really looking forward to. And the point is, is that if you endure through difficulty, if you trust God through difficulty, when God gives you opportunities to suffer and you say, I'm going to trust the Lord in this, I'm going to praise God through this, do you realize that the other side of that, on the other side of eternity here, that there is reward for you? Jesus promised that. This is Bible. This is what the Bible teaches. God puts us in situations. He gives us opportunities to serve him and to build his church, and he wants us to be faithful he wants us to be faithful. Well, there is so much more that I could say. Honestly, I wanted to talk a little bit about what the reward is. I think one of the problems that we have in Christianity is that we imagine heaven being this like bright place that we can barely even see, you know, and we get up there and there's Jesus, like, is he really even there? And then it's like this, this crown gets tossed at me, and I'm like, okay, I'll pick that up. And and we not it's like not really an incentive, okay? Do you realize Jesus has a real body? A human body, he's in heaven, we will, we will see him face to face. Like, you're looking at me, you'll look at him. It's actually a real place. Actually, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So, so God, God creates, God has created a, a material world for us to enjoy him and to glorify him. And that's actually what eternity will be like, okay? And the rewards that he gives us will be rewards of, the Bible speaks of them as, as being crowns. So there is some type of crown, some type of physical reward that the Lord gives to those who, who are faithful servants. But, but what, what is that? I, I don't exactly know necessarily what that crown is. I do think this. I think probably the, the most important reward on that day isn't necessarily a thing we receive. I think it's actually the words that Jesus gives to us when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I think that's probably the key reward. Also, there's the reward of worshiping and enjoying the Lord, right? Because we don't keep those. We go, hey, Lord, they're, they're yours, right? Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's Revelation chapter 4. And so on that day, I mean, there's going to be an amazing, and how long is that day going to last? I think probably longer than 24 hours, okay? But... That day, there will be an amazing time of worship for Christ and what he's done and how he used us. I think there's another part of the reward that we miss as well, and that is that it's not just on that day or that time period when we have that judgment seat of Christ, because that will end at some point as far as the evaluation of our life. There actually will be an effect upon our eternal joy and our eternal glory. Now, you might not know what I'm talking about, so I will get recommend that you listen to or read, I don't think you can listen to it, <laughs> read Jonathan Edwards' message on Romans chapter 2, verse 10. And if you want me, uh, if you want that, I can email it to you. But it's interesting, Jonathan Edwards basically gives an argument here in this sermon, but in other places, that God created us to now glorify him and enjoy him. We're, we're saved and made a new creation to glorify and enjoy him. And, and as one glorifies and enjoys the Lord and trusts the Lord here on earth, the reward we get for eternity is enjoying and glorifying him. 
and that some people will have greater capacities to glorify God and enjoy God. There'll be a greater happiness for some people than other people. And he compares it to like jars, right? And cups. You have bigger cups and you have smaller cups. And you know, every one of those cups could have water in them, some kind of liquid that's overflowing. So every person in heaven will be full of joy, full of the glory of God. Like it'll be a blessed time, but there'll be some that have greater capacities. There, there are bigger cups. There are pitchers that you can have and fill up with water. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, as a person lives on earth, they enjoy God. They, they trust the Lord. They, they live for the glory of God. One of the rewards they have is for eternity. Now think about that. For eternity, they will have a greater capacity to enjoy God and glorify God. Isn't that amazing to think about? Now, let me ask this question. If you thought of the rewards like that, would that change how you live? I mean, if you really thought, what I do today, like everything I do today, it's going to affect my eternity. I mean, not like 100 years, not 1,000 years, not a million years, like literally eternity. Like I could have a greater capacity to enjoy God and, and fellowship with God and glorify God in eternity. Is that pretty amazing to think about? And I think that's actually accurate. And again, I don't have time to get into all that, but the point is, is that it's a real incentive. God has rewards for us, and it is truly motivational. So let me end with this story. Jonathan Edwards, again, I talked about him teaching that, but he also lived that. He was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts for 23 years, and he had 600 members in his church. And if you know anything about American history, he was a very important person in American history. Um, the, some of the great revivals happened under his ministry and his care. But there was something in the church that was going on, and that was in regard to membership. There were many people in the church who were members who clearly weren't Christians, or at least they weren't living that way. And, and so he was convinced as a pastor that he should do church discipline, like he should have members who are committed and saved, and if you're not, then you shouldn't be a member. So he was convinced that they should practice 1 Corinthians 5 in Matthew chapter 18. So, so he had really a question he had to ask himself. Should he come to the church and say, I believe many of you aren't believers, and therefore you shouldn't be members, and he would lose his job, he would lose his income, he has a bunch of kids, can't feed his kids, and it's a lot, there's no like programs back then to help you if, you know, if you don't have a job, and literally put his kids on the street. Would that happen, or should, I should say, should, should he stand on his convictions, or should he capitulate? Should he say, you know what, what's the big deal? Like, it was already here before I came. Like, who really cares? I'll just keep preaching the Bible. That's all that matters. And, and he told the church about his convictions, and people began to talk about it. People began to cause division about it, and they wanted to bring it up for a vote. And so, sure enough, on, in July 1750, the church voted him out as their pastor by over 90%. Isn't that crazy to think about? And, and he was out on the street. <laughs> he didn't have a job. He had to somehow feed his kids. He actually became a missionary to Indians. And I, I can imagine him on, the, on his horse going through some of these woods thinking, I don't know if I'm going to die. You know, like these, Here's these Native Americans I'm going to go give the gospel to. Did I do the right thing? <laughs> well, he only lived for a couple more years after that. He actually did eventually pass away in only a short time after that. What do you think he thinks now that he's in heaven? See, I think we have decisions like that in our life where we go, okay, it's going to be easier if I do this. I'll just get by. It doesn't really matter. But then when you go, 
actually, I've got to stand before Jesus. I've got to answer to him. That matters more than 90% of those people and what their opinions are. Like following God's word, trusting God's word is more important. Jesus, your opinion matters more than anything else. And I want to I want you to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, I am going to do something that's very difficult. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to trust you. Now, look at verse 16. Because I think that we also should consider not just the rewards, but we should consider the opposite, and that is the punishment. Verse 16, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is a warning. I don't think he's speaking to believers here. I think he's speaking to people in the church who are destroying the church. I don't think the people in the church are believers. I don't think that God will destroy a person in hell if they're a part of the family of God. But I think here, well, here's what he's warning. He's saying, listen, if you're a person who's going to destroy God's church, in other words, you're going you're gonna to tear people down you're going to do what they did to the church in Northampton where it's like you're going to push your agenda, you're going to hurt God's people, then God will hurt you. And you know, I'll be honest, I don't really know what that means. I, I think if it's, if it's a punishment of hell, that definitely means that person was never a believer. But maybe it means something else. I don't really know, but I don't think we all want to find out, do we? I mean, this should cause us to fear when we think about oh, let's come against that person. I think we should step back and go, oh, Lord, if, if I destroy your church, if I destroy that person, if I destroy, like, you will destroy me. And I think we should stand in the fear of God when we're tempted to go down that path. But hopefully on the other end of that, we are looking to love people, to edify people, to serve people, to build the church. And so God's greatest and most holy work today is building his church. So how are you serving his church? Are you using his resources of grace and wisdom? Are, are we building upon the foundation of Christ? Is he, is he your only hope in life and death? Is it your life's work? I mean, is it your life's work? I know you're like, well, I have a job. Yeah, that's okay. Like, serve Christ in that job. Use that job to serve Christ. Are you building the church in a way that will reap eternal?